0: A house is a place for living together. The world needs togetherness, not separation. It's a place for love, not suspicion. And it's also a place where we think our future. A house is about a common future. It's It's a place where we can imagine a common future, not isolation.
1: Hello and welcome back to Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo. This week I've come to the Serpentine Gallery in London to have a chat with its artistic director, Hans Ulrich Obrist. Hans Ulrich is definitely one of the most important and prolific art curators of our times, and he's got an energy unlike anyone I've met before, I must admit. Words kind of tumble out of him in great torrents, including anecdotes and quotations, names of artists who've influenced him. So people like the Swiss duo Fishley Weiss, who he talks about a lot, and also the Lebanese painter and poet Etel Adnan. He's famous for hardly sleeping at night and also for conducting 24-hour conversation marathons that have sometimes left him hospitalised. Hans Ulrich's notion of home is also pretty extreme to be honest when he was a student he turned his flat into a gallery and he couldn't cook because the kitchen was full of books and there were also marble eggs in the fridge he's also lived in some of the world's most famous house museums including the modernist architect Luis Barragan's house in Mexico City and also the 19th century London home of the architect and collector Sir John Soane which many of you will know this episode doesn't quite follow the usual format, but I think it's a really interesting portrait of a brilliant man. We will start at the beginning. So yeah, hands over we right. begin with the beginning. We begin with the beginning. Um, so you grew up in Switzerland, right?
0: Yeah, I grew up in the eastern part of Switzerland. It's a small town called Weinfelden. So I suppose it was kind of important For me, there in the as a a child in the late 70s, you know, early 80s, to have this sort of border crossing thing on an almost daily basis because it's a what you call in German the Dreiländereck, it's a corner of three countries It's Austria, Switzerland, and Germany. And um, we would always go for lunch or for the the movies, you know, to Germany. And so the idea of crossing the borders, you know, it was pre EU. pre-EU and pre-Brexit. And I suppose that's always been my idea of, um, of Europe, you know, to just yeah. uh, have, not have these borders. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was somehow um, important for me as a as a child to sort of have this experience. We could swim to Austria. <laughs> yeah, It's amazing to have a lake as a child, and the lake connects three countries. I think in terms of the mental space, is quite a unique experience. Yeah, yeah. And it made me think a lot about... Um, About maybe also once when I'm grown up leaving Switzerland and I wanted Mm -hmm. to learn more languages. So when I went to school, I learned Italian and French and English and Spanish and Russian to kind of to be ready Mm. then for the world in a way. And and so the idea of a multilinguist upbringing was was also was also important.
1: I want to ask about your sort of early interaction with the built environment, because I think you've talked about a library that you went to go and see. When you're a child,
0: yeah, my parents took me when I was maybe seven, eight, nine years old several times to this monastery library. Uh, it's the monastery burned down, and so it was actually rebuilt during the Rococo. But the books were from the Middle Ages, like tenth, eleventh centuries. So. And for me, it was like time traveling as a child because there were these felt shoes one had to wear to not damage the floor, and so one could then actually make an appointment and actually look at these medieval books and also another experience was really that I started to kind of <clears throat> buy a lot of postcards art postcards um, when I was a teenager books also a lot of art books and started to build up my own library in my kinderzimmer you know in the room my, how do you call this in English the kinderzimmer the children room or yeah yeah playroom in my playroom yeah. as, a, as a teenager at my parents home and uh, little by little the room was completely filled with art books and uh and with tens of thousands uh, of postcards. I, I mean, not tens of thousands, but I suppose thousands of postcards. You maybe... put them on the walls? Yeah, and that's it. So I started to make these uh, boxes, these cardboard rooms. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, thinking about rooms and, and uh, houses, the kind of topic of your podcast, that was kind of my first house. So I, I basically um, built an architecture with maybe seven, eight rooms and every day yeah. made different installations because the the, the the postcards were the kind of size of the paintings. And so, you know, I made rooms, I made models, in a way, of exhibition rooms accordingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Curating. Curating. It was the beginning of curating and um, uh, it went from, you know, there's a lot of impressionist postcards and expressionist postcards. And then, of course, it sort of went little by little also a bit contemporary. There weren't many contemporary postcards but there were... I suppose some Gerhard Richter postcards, some Louis Bourgeois postcards in the 80s, some Joseph Beuys postcards. And they also went into my... Yeah, it was an imaginary museum, I suppose. And um, it became almost impossible for my parents even to enter that room because the books formed columns in the room and then between the book columns were these spaces, you know, these small spaces with the postcards. And then I also some of these postcards on panels on the walls so the walls were covered with these panels.
1: What, what, how would you describe what you were trying to do with that process? Why were you doing it do you think?
0: I knew that I wanted to work with art and um, and so in a way it was a, a do-it-yourself way of doing exhibitions. I was, it was, I was always very much into this idea of DIY to just do it.
1: Is there a particular encounter with a piece of art that you can remember that set this journey in motion?
0: Yeah, I suppose it was the, the long, thin figures of, of Giacometti. Okay. When I was maybe 12, 13, we went to the Kunsthaus in Zurich with my parents. But but that's, you know, I, my parents weren't necessarily museum visitors, so as to say. And we didn't have art books at home. There was some literature, uh, but not really art books. So in a way, it had a lot to do how actually art... Came to me through other channels, you know, and I think that's also why, as a curator, I've always believed that we need to find ways how to get out outside the exhibition space, you know, that we need to create encounters with no doors. Yeah, because if you sort of have art only behind doors, for a lot of people it's not accessible because they just Mm. don't think it's for them. And you know, my parents would always say, you know, a museum is not really for people like us. It's only once I started to insist that I really wanted to go to museums, that they, you know, they obviously then went because they wanted me to experience it. But it wouldn't have been their initiative. So the way it happened is actually that the art in a way came to me. My parents would always go every couple of weeks to Zurich, mm. the bigger city nearby and do their shopping for food and clothes and everything. And we encountered this, this gentleman who, who sold flowers and drawings. And um, he later on became actually quite famous in Switzerland as an outsider artist. Okay. And his name was Hans Kruse. And he basically was living on farms and um, worked occasionally as a, you know, as a worker on different farms and um, started at some point as an outsider artist to do these extraordinary drawings and paintings. And he, he mainly painted cows. And it was very fascinating that farmers would bring the cows to the mountains and and there was grass and then in winter when it got cold they would basically bring the cows again into the valley and and this sounds like a procession, right? a cow procession. So he started to make this very long drawing of cows, almost 50 meters and they make cow cinema machines so you have little wooden boxes and you can turn and then the cows migrate. And uh, I was kind of fascinated because He was selling flowers to make a living and uh, would also show these little drawings of cows. And so I think that was an encounter, you know, outside Mm. the museum, in the street. Then there was Harald Negeli, the sprayer of Zurich, who made all these graffitis in in urban space. He was omnipresent at that time. And then Jean Tangeli was very famous at the time, you know, as as a Swiss artist his art would be, be on chocolates and biscuits, and I would sort of keep the paper. So, you know, and I, again, it arrived, you know, it arrived to me, it wasn't hidden yeah. in a museum yeah. or something. And, and then I would say a very important encounter was when the Swiss railway system, you know, they, they would commission every year an artist to do the cover of the of the timetable. And I think in 1984 or five they asked the well-known artist, Claude Sando, a Swiss artist, to kind of do the cover and the poster of the Swiss railway. And uh, he happened to have a small exhibition nearby, and I found out, I went to see the exhibition. And that's when I think an epiphany happened, because I suddenly realized, wow, there is actually some artists among our contemporaries. It's not only in the museum. It's not only in right. my, my postcard museum with artists who are there. No, there are, you know, great artists in our time who are working. And that again happened, you know, not through a museum visit, because I wouldn't have encountered it in a museum, but it happened because of the timetable arriving on my parents' desk. So that's yeah. why I believe, you know, in this idea of art for all, that we sort of have to find ways how we can bring art to the people. That's why also at the time, you know, not only do we have free admission, but we do art in the park or, or the pavilion, right? Every year commission an architect to basically do a structure in front of the gallery and there are no doors. Everybody can just enter, can come. And there's a lot of passerbys, you know, who in the morning think they're going to walk. They don't think we're visiting an architecture art show as I believe that art can have this transformative, you know, quality. And my first show, actually, at a certain time, many years ago, was Take Me On Me, where all the works were disseminated. People could take the works and could install them in their apartments. I think that sort of comes from that experience as a child that I kind of want to replicate that for other people later on to create this possibility for people who might not grow up, you know, with parents who take them to art, that at least we can somehow yeah create this possibility for them to encounter art
1: so interesting it really is and you mentioned outsider art there I mean as a child did you feel like a bit of an outsider yourself how would you describe yourself as a child what were you like yeah I mean I grew
0: up as a single child so I always had this obsession to connect and to meet mm. people you know I suppose that urge and necessity to meet people was always the driving force so I no I was I was a, lots of friends and of course you know as I started very early as a teenager too shows in my apartment and to, to visit artists most of my friends were not interested in that so I had a lot of friends who were slightly older through that I suppose okay. yeah yeah
1: makes sense you've talked about getting on the night train a lot
0: yeah tell me about that. yeah I still do that I mean I then you know when I was sort of 16 17 I started to go beyond Switzerland you know first to Germany and Vienna and Paris and then um all over Europe, really, with an interrail ticket. ticket for a month, you can travel everywhere and you have money for hotels, so I would just basically always take the night train to the next city, so I would do 30 days, 30 cities, go to the museum, but also ring up artists and visit. so in a way, you know, uh, the, the night train became kind of my medium, and I still do that a lot, I use trains, I do most of my travel in Europe, I train. What after. compelled you to do that? Yeah, I wanted to maybe write the lives of the artists and lives of the architects of our time. So I started to record conversations so that I later on would remember and could write it down. And in a way, I mean, I had a student apartment in St. Galland and um, not so soon after the apartment was again completely full with books and even the kitchen was completely overcrowded with books. So so one day, Fishly Weiss, the Swiss artists who have been my mentors, they they came to visit me in the student apartment in St. And they said, this is really, really weird that there is, you know, there's nothing with life. It's all art because I never cooked. So I would always, you know, go out for coffee in the morning. And then I would work all day long and come home late at night. So I, there was, there was no food in the fridge and there were books everywhere in the kitchen. So Fischliweiss said, actually, we should liberate your kitchen, you know, from the books. And the same week I met Christian Boltanski in Paris. Where Boltanski said, you know, Want to do an exhibition in your kitchen because it's an unexpected place. So we did this show. I mean, here you see the house where the apartment was. It's in St. Gallen. I studied economy and ecology there. So is this the exhibition catalogue? Yeah, this is the exhibition catalogue. It's a kind of a mobile, portable exhibition uh, where every artist made an original artwork for the, for the catalogue. And um, here you see the shows, officially wise, ordered very major, very big quantities of food, created a kitchen altar, so, you know, five liters of ketchup, five kilograms of noodles. It's basically restaurant supply. (laughs) And it was very charming because, in a way, it's like when we are, as a child, we enter a room, you know, everything appears, of course, much bigger than when we are later grown up. And Fishly Weiss wanted to kind of replicate this childhood experience by making everything so big that we are, again, almost like a child and marvel at these very big, you know, objects. And so this became an altar, almost like in church, it became a kitchen altar, And then Hans-Peter Feynman said that he didn't really want to exhibit in the kitchen, but he wanted the fridge. He put marble eggs and feathers into the fridge. So here you see the marble eggs and the feathers. So that's that's the fridge. Uh, it, It took place from July to September 1991, and it basically turned the kitchen space into an exhibition space. So the reality of the kitchen and the reality of the artwork I wrote at the time are linked to each other. The combination of these two levels of reality being a symbiotic one. The original function of the kitchen is maintained, so potentially one could have cooked. Uh, at the same time, the question of autonomy and function of the exhibits arises in a context that is not designed for exhibition. Starting point is the idea to present an exhibition in an unspectacular place. Right. So obviously the idea also that we can a- encounter art where we expect it least.
1: So this is your, so you're living in this place, this is your kitchen. It was my kitchen. And it's taken over by this art installation, but, and you're still living there. Still living there. What was that like to live with it?
0: No, it was very beautiful because I basically was also, the you know, I, I was, of course, the organizer, the curator, but I was also the tour guide because yeah. I gave everybody who came a tour because mm. I, I had to be there. The exhibition lasted three months and oh, we yeah. had 29 visitors. <laughs> and that's why we then needed a book. And then Richard Van did these photographs. He basically had some found snapshots. And and so almost like wh- whoever bought the publication thought, wow, the artist forgot the originals inside, but everybody had just copies. So. Okay. <laughs> so that was, you know, so it's almost like the ex- the catalogue became a kind of a part of the exhibition. Yeah. And, and that leads us to kind of to the third, my third apartment, because I always had this dream already as a child to live in a hotel room. Uh-huh. That was my biggest dream, because I had read about these artists in Paris who, who lived in hotels. So, uh, I rented a hotel room in Paris for three or four months, and the hotel was basically called the Carlton Palace, only a three-star hotel (laughs) at that time, and so affordable. But it was also a hotel where some artists actually lived. Bertrand Mm -hmm. LaVie and Gloria Friedman, when they were in Paris, would always have the room 763. And Raymond Hans, the legendary um, late Raymond Hans, who was famous for his torn down posters, he lived there all year long. And uh, so it was my dream come true to not only live in a hotel, but live in a hotel with artists. I remember when I arrived and I suddenly was in my tiny hotel room that I had actually earlier done a kitchen show. I said, wow, I could just do the same in the hotel room. I could organize a um, hotel exhibition. I think we do have a book also somewhere. So you see, that's the Hotel Carlton Palace. I didn't tell the hotel what I was doing. I, I just sort of invited every day another artist to <laughs> do something in the room. And I remember the concierge, you know, said you have really a lot of visitors. And they had no idea what I was doing. They were probably weird. <laughs> and um, and so Pistoletto came and he, you know, installed a column in the middle. He covered the column with yellow paper. and. Uh, then Douglas Garden added to the window from, the mo- from this moment until next time. And then Bertrand Lavier painted the window.
1: And, uh, did you, I can ask, did you have housekeeping in, at any point?
0: Yeah, they did make up the room. Or did they think um, they, they didn't report uh, Yeah, back? they reported to the reception that, uh, that the guest <laughs> is decorating the room. And, uh, and basically, uh, given the fact that I was a long-term resident because I had rented the room for several months, they were fine with it. <laughs> Yeah, so it was really fun because it was sort of very intimate. And uh, Fishly Weiss did a a really wonderful piece. They basically recorded an hour of radio during the hottest day of the year. So it gives you all the, you know, the temperature checks. It says basically Marseille, 32 degrees, Paris, 31, terrible heat waves in France. And it was just the news and then music It was a radio program. And basically, throughout the exhibition, when later I made the exhibition public, they just wanted me to play this one hour. And so it became, you know, little by little, it became a bit chilly. It was autumn. And my radio in the room would still say, Marseille, 32 degrees. (laughs) So for the visitors, it was very weird. They thought, like, (laughs) what's going on? And then the radio would say, it says, oh, it's 4 p.m. And then people at 2 p.m. would freak out. They said, time has passed so fast. It was like a time capsule.
1: You, You said that you've always been intrigued by living in a hotel room. Is it fair to say that your notion of home is quite a functional one rather than an emotional one?
0: Yeah, I would say so, but it's also very much—it's connected to the idea of being nomadic, particularly at the beginning of my life, mm. because the first sort of you know, ten, fifteen years of my work throughout the nineties, I you mm. know, I lived mostly in in residencies, artist residencies, I had curatorial residencies, and and in hotels, and so in that sense, you know. It, it was kind of alive on the move. That's why also a hotel room was in that sense the the perfect home. And yeah. it became, it was very interesting because the exhibition, you know, even the bathroom became part of the shows. Lothar Baumgarten, yeah, you know, forgot a hair clip in the sink.
1: <laughs> and um, Which meant that you then couldn't brush your teeth or wash. <laughs> exactly. I had to
0: remove the clip at night. And then we had also portable sculptures. So for example, Franz West did a portable sculpture which we would always carry to the nearby restaurants when when we went for dinner so the <laughs> exhibition would continue also in the restaurant and put it on the table It was like a, you know, great. A, a ritual and then of course all the artists made a postcard so we again had this idea of dissemination hmm. and visitors could get the postcards and then you know obviously send them to friends and uh, yeah so that's the book
1: how fascinating I love that Just a quick aside, I wanted to tell you briefly about my day job. So I'm the co-founder of a pair of design-led estate agencies, one called The Modern House and the other called Inigo. Uh, The Modern House is dedicated to the best examples of modernist and contemporary architecture. And Inigo, on the other hand, represents pre-modern housing. So everything from a Victorian workers' cottage in town to a Georgian rectory in the country. The idea is that via those two platforms, We are able to provide a pre-filtered selection of the most beautiful and well-designed homes for sale in the UK at any one time. Alongside the sales listings, there's all sorts of inspirational content as well. So there's house tours of amazing spaces, area guides, exhibition guides, cultural recommendations and things like that. So if you're looking to buy or sell a place or you want some inspiration for your own home, do take a look at our two websites, themodernhouse.com and inigo.com. Right, back to the podcast. You're obviously well known for your conversations, your discourse. I mean, for your whole career, you've been recording your conversations with people. Yeah. And you've done marathons as well, famously, including one or several of 24 hours long. Why, Why did you do that? Why talk to someone for that long?
0: Yeah, I suppose that it's always been the idea also of making a portrait, for example, of a city. So with the marathon we made an attempt at making a portrait of london a portrait of paris a portrait portrait of different cities by having conversations with many practitioners from different fields so we did a 24-hour marathon having conversations with urbanists artists poets writers i'm interested also in what happens between these different conversations because Mm -hmm. you know people then can start to talk to each other through my archive i mean that's so far about four thousand hours and also a lot of these practitioners who were maybe very old when I interviewed them are no longer around. So it's also a conversation between the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, one could imagine one day when it's all digitized, I mean, working on that, that the different, you know, characters and personas in the project could actually potentially talk to each other in mm-hmm. a way. So that's, that's kind of the idea. Yeah.
1: What, what, what happens to conversation after 24 hours of solid talking and does, does it become more interesting or does it sort of fade out into Tiredness. What what happens?
0: No, there are many many different connections because obviously we take a lot of notes and then after a little while there are patterns mm. that connect. I think that's the most interesting part about it, you know, because we can then always connect the conversation to what happens five hours ago or eight hours ago, and you know that happens anyway. I think in our daily life, you know, we might have a dinner conversation and the next day, you know, I, I would go for dinner and have a conversation with friends, and the next morning I would follow up the conversation and have another thought about it, having breakfast with my partner, and then mm. you know maybe I'm at the office uh, an hour later and I have another conversation at the office. And anyway, very often these conversations connect, yeah. but there are many, many more connections provoked mm. through this unbelievable intensity. And I suppose that sort of intensity or density or intensity mm. is also connected to my experience with apartments because I mm. could also... Never really afford a bigger apartment, so mm. later on, you know, at the beginning, I would just nomadically live in curatorial residences and in small flats and mm. and often in hotel rooms, and then I would always have very small apartments, and they would always be super dense.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Am I right in saying you had to go to hospital <laughs> after your twenty-four hour talkathon? Yeah, the first time. Yeah. Then we got. I got used to it. What What happened?
0: Yeah, it just uh, there was a uh, an exhaustion symptom and. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't very serious, but it's you
1: know. not surprising. Though. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you comfortable with silence out of interest? I think Silence is
0: important. I mean, I'm not. I think listening is very important. I mean, mm. Eteladnan, my friend, the poet, uh, she always told me how important it is to listen, but also to uh, how important it is to to you know to think about silence. And the moment I really realized the the importance of silence was in another conversation with the philosopher Gadamer, who was a pupil of of Heidegger, and he was very, very senior, he was a hundred years old, when I met him in his house in Heidelberg, he was alone in this big house, talking about houses, and uh, full of books, we did the interview, and after about an hour of conversation, he fell asleep, (laughs) the chair, and and I was really worried, because I thought, like, OMG, what am I going to do? I can't really wake up the great philosopher. Yeah. So I was just patiently waiting, you know. <laughs> and, and, um, and after about 15 minutes, luckily the telephone rang. It was around 2000, so we still had landlines. Yeah. It's this very loud phone, and he suddenly woke up, and um, said, man, I'm, I'm in an interview here, I need to call you back. And he hung up the phone, and he was perfectly aware of what had happened. He looked at my camera, and he looked at the at the dictaphone and he said, you will have greatest difficulties to transcribe my silence. Love that. And listening. I mean, Etelana was always saying that we we need, first of all, she told me that we need togetherness, not separation, love, not suspicion, a common future, not isolation. And that's really in a way my mantra. It's, it's, It's togetherness, not separation, love, not suspicion, a common future, not isolation. And in this age of polarization and separation and, and more and more technology. It's very important, I think, to, to follow what tell says and, and listen. And of course, she was in her 90s when we, we met in her late 80s. And she, she actually passed away last year, age 97. Uh, and in her long life, she had a, a big unrealized dream. She was a, a visual artist, a painter. She made drawings. She was a poet, a political journalist. She was a public artist. She made a lot of, you know, wall works, works in public space. But she always said that she had one very big, unrealized project. Because she, you know, born in 1925, she found it very difficult as a teenager to to realize her dream and to become an architect. Because basically in the 40s, she was told by everyone that a woman could not be an architect. And, uh, And then, of course, there was the civil war and... Uh, Also, history made it, so many reasons made it impossible. But Edel herself also never gave up her project to be an architect. So she would always talk in all the conversations we had about her architecture project. And uh, at some point I said, you know, in order for it to happen, she has to write it down. So the next time we met, she had prepared this drawing to design a house. And I'm going to read you here the letter about this house. Edel wrote, Dear Hans-Ulrich. Here is the plan of the houses promised. It would be good if it is on land with trees or a forest. The walls are in brick or glass as stated. There are no windows, but doors, which are long and vertical and work like windows. There is an open terrace that is brick. There is an atelier, workshop, a studio, which leads to a kitchen, which leads to a bedroom, which leads to a deck. Its roof is in wood, flat, covered with a pointed roof, which is in blue tiles. I hope, I wish you like it. Much love, Etel. Now, what was wonderful about this is that she really wanted to do a house which tells us how to live and how to live together. It goes back to the quote, right? A house is a place for living together. The world needs togetherness, not separation. It's a place for love, not suspicion. And it's also a place... Where we think our future, a house is about a common future. It's a, it's a place where we can imagine a common future, not isolation. So in a way, uh, she wanted this house to be a house to live together, and, and 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 she wanted also, actually, this house of 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 togetherness, a bit like Roland Barthes, um, to be a way of almost like a manual how to live together because it's really important when designing a house. That everybody can live according to their own rhythm. Mm-hmm. So the house in that sense needs to be the facilitator of one's own idiorhythmia of one's own rhythm and, and respect that. And the beautiful thing is that now, you know, it passed away very sadly, age 97 last last winter in November 2021. But her partner, Simon Fatal, also an extraordinary artist is actually now realizing it she found a patch of land in lebanon Mm. and the house is now going to be built so i hope they can all visit it soon yeah
1: yeah how brilliant well how fascinating i mean i'd love to ask you about that rhythm that you talked about in relation to your own space that you live in at the moment where where do you live and what's it like and how does it how's it a backdrop to your sort of everyday existence
0: yeah i mean i've always um I was in some I in London, you know lived in small apartments with my partner Kusho the artist the korean artist uh, uh, here in you know in really in the neighborhood and um and that's just in a way you know a base it's there's you know one room which is very full with books our partner Ku is an artist, so we also you know live with some of her art some of her uh, amazing drawings and paintings phosphorescent paintings they are really um sparkling, they are scintillating, is that the word in English, they are scintillating and um, and so we are kind of living with these paintings of of stars. These are very small apartments because it's far too expensive um, to have a a big apartment in London and that's why my books have always been outside the UK so initially they were in um, in Lüneburg at the University, now they are in my home country in Switzerland in storage, or in storage, and also in a, in a in a small apartment there, and then there are also um, in Arl at the at the Luma Foundation where okay. my archive is. So we live we live in uh, in very small apartments, and also you know very often really live in public space. As a student, I wrote a lot in libraries, you know, and I think libraries, public libraries, are very important. Parks are very important. We spend a lot of time in parks. I, I do a lot of my meetings on walks, in parks. But I still work a lot in cafes and restaurants. I mean, in Paris, I I wrote most of my texts in cafes. In London, a bit less. But even here, I you know, I do I do spend a lot of time in, in restaurants and cafes.
1: So it sounds like, yeah, your home is quite a fractured thing that spills out beyond the, yeah. the walls of your actual very apartment. Very much so, yeah. yeah. It's,
0: it's kind of a... It's very much a network. You know, I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned is that I've actually lived in numerous house museums, I I decided at some point to curate exhibitions in house museums, and through that temporarily inhabit them. The first time, actually, I realized it was here in London in '99, when the artist Carithrin Evans and I visited the Sir John Soane's Museum. Mm-hmm. Have you been there? Yeah, it's it's really it's it's an incredible experience, and so we visited it and. I was very fascinated by the way you know zones combined very personal items. It's extremely personal. You would have a branch he found on one of his walks, or mm. you would have a, at the same time a Turner painting, or you would have a, yeah, a Constable or a Turner. In a way, um, high and low would meet. You know, daily objects. He would also have his own work because he also used the house, of course, as a as a place to teach. Right. So it's also kind of like a public house and then little by little he actually transformed it during his lifetime into a museum you also have an Egyptian mummy you know you have a, a lot of mirrors um, and it''s super super dense it's so dense that he ran out of space for his paintings so he had to double the walls and during certain hours the the guards actually the they would open the walls for you and then you could see the paintings behind the paintings so when we saw this house, I told Caris it would be wonderful to live here. And that's obviously, a, you know, an unrealizable project. So I told Karis maybe we could curate the show here. And we met this extraordinary director called Margaret Richardson. And uh, Margaret said, you know, this is an interesting idea. Let me think about it. There's only a little bit of a problem is that the, the museum has a, you know, really low budget. She said there's one thing she can offer, she says, you know, because there is a guest room. So she basically says, you can live there for six months or a year and prepare your exhibition. So all of a sudden, you know, I actually did live. So, you know, talking about the houses where I lived, it's it's the Sir John Soane's house also. And, wow. and it was a truly extraordinary experience because very, very, very uncanny to be there alone with these exhibits at night. <laughs> it's almost like that it became animated, the yeah. spirits. And there was also the windows that kept banging at night and the... Uh, so sometimes I had to put a shoe, you know, on the top floor between the window that it would stop banging. And so after this experience, I spoke to my friend Isabella Mora, who is also very obsessed by house museums, and said we need to find another house museum. So she basically came up with this wonderful idea of the Casa Baragán. It's the house of the architect Luis Baragán in uh, another Gesamtkunstwerk in, in Mexico City. We, we we spent several months in the, in the Baragán house, we couldn't sleep there at night. That wasn't possible okay. in that case, but we could didn't have a guest room, but we could work there all day long. And of course, again, the artists, you know, worked with the courtyard, Ronnie Horn worked with the water. But Douglas Gordon used the whips of Paragon. He had a whole cupboard, you know, full of whips. At the same time, uh, there was a fake Albers painting, which the artists were very fascinated by because actually had said to Albers, I really would like to have a painting by you. And Albers said, um, you know, Yes, but it was somehow too complicated and too expensive for Barragan. So so Bargan said, you know, what can we do? So Albers said, I'm going to send you the instructions, just how to do an Albers painting, and then oh, right. you, Louis Barragan, can do it with your team. And so that <laughs> painting is there. So it's also about bringing these houses alive, because there's so mm. many stories. Houses are mm. stories. They're full. I mean, if you imagine, they've heard everything, these houses. They've had so many conversations. It's a conversation piece. A house is also a pretext for having a conversation and so in a way, um, we wanted to kind of bring Barragan back. So Kerry Evans, you know, fixed the record players. They've been broken for years. And so all of a sudden, we could play all the records of Louis Barragan. And that that changed the house completely. Because it's as if he was alive, you know, it's a very eclectic record collection. And then he had a, a broken Cadillac in the garage. So Rick Tirovani's piece was to fix the Cadillac. So all of a sudden the garage door opened again and Barragan drove out into the street. <laughs> Yeah, so in a way, I suppose if you ask me about the houses, yeah, I've only ever lived in small apartments, but I have spent Mm. a lot of time in the world's most extraordinary houses by curating shows there, and that series goes on. It always has to be a magical house which artists love. It's not just a house I love, Mm. because it only works if it's a house which inspires artists to, to do work. And I think it's interesting that actually houses can be instigators for more intimate art also to be born. It's interesting because a lot of these artworks for my house exhibitions, you know, Baragán, Lorca, Lina Bobardi, Zones, have exclude, have absolutely been created for these spaces. And these are pieces the artists would never have made mm. in a bigger space, like a big museum space.
1: That's really interesting. Where do you see the sort of crossover between art and architecture? I mean, do, you, do you see architecture as a form of art?
0: Yeah, I think that they are, of course, to very different fields I think it's important that we we don't separate them that we can you know we can bring them together and there is such a long history of artists and architects collaborating Mm. I mean the walls of houses have often been an artistic medium I mean if it's in minimalism you know um, artists like Larry Bell who once told me that for him walls are a part of of the sculpture walls are part of his artistic medium so walls can be can be sculptures, you know, sculptures can be walls. And I think we should take into account how often artists and architects, you know, how often
1: this collaboration has been very, very, you know, productive. Is that an opportunity to talk about the pavilions a bit? Yeah, maybe, no,
0: yeah. I mean, art and architecture, um, for me, it's never been separated, you know, because as a curator, I needed, of course, exhibition designs for my shows. After having visited... Artists initially, I started to do the same with architects. You know, I went to architect studios, went to, to Zaha Hadid, I went to, you know, Frank Gehry. It's been very exciting for me to, you know, to, to join the Serpentine in 2006 and also for the first time co commission architecture, which goes beyond the mere display feature of an exhibition, but actually to commission temporary buildings. And, and I think one usually is very rarely a client of architecture in one's life. I mean, I certainly will never, you know, to build build my own house. So in that sense, you know, I'm not going to commission an architect. And professionally, you know, if you run an institution, maybe once or twice or three times in our life, we commission a new wing or a new building. It's not happening every year whilst the pavilion happens every year. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, I found this incredibly exciting that one can actually Commission architecture every year and build reality with with architecture because we spend so much time in the pavilions during the summer I mean literally every day hours and hours so in a way it's almost like an extended house you know Mm. and that's what is the idea of the pavilion it is a public space for everyone people don't have to consume they don't it's not like a cafe where you have to order something people can just come and hang out they can work they can do meetings and it's for many many people I mean it has between 100 and 200, sometimes even more, 1,000 visitors every year. Um, and initially, the idea was really to introduce architects who haven't built in the UK, but have built in many other countries, because in a way, London is such a global city and um, so international, but in terms of architecture, actually a lot of international architects had never built here. It was rather insular. Mm. And that was really the departure point. When, um, we, we commissioned, you know... Zahadi to do her first ever building in the UK. She had lived here for many years. We commissioned Sejima to do her first building here. We commissioned um, Niemeyer, many different architects, legendary architects. And about five, six, seven years ago, we felt it's time to go into the younger generation. We think it's incredibly exciting now to work with very young architects. Umaya Belli, who was in her late 20s when we appointed her to design the pavilion and that became one of her first built structures. Frida Escobedo, a young architect from Mexico who had built in Mexico and not really built so much internationally and through the pavilion now um, became internationally much, much more known and was commissioned to build the big new extension of the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So in a way, it's extremely exciting to you know um, make visible this extraordinary young generation of architects. and so we're excited to work this year. With uh, Lina Gottme, there will be a big focus on food this year. She wants there to be a conviviality. She wants also there to be a table where actually people who have never met each other can sit together and have a conversation. So mm. that all connects again in a way to uh, to Nan. And, and we can see this pavilion really. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's possible to spend all day there during the summer. Mm. It's a house.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I but it's a house
0: for everyone. And yeah. I think that's also important that we have public spaces. I think it's important to think about in cities, you know, how we can create houses, gathering spaces for everyone. So I, I think this idea that, you know, the house is only seen as a private space um, is, 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 is in that sense very limiting. I think we need to think about houses for all, houses which can be there for everyone, which can be a great experience for,
1: for everyone. I'm just so interested in your energy and how prolific you are, and you, you know, you, I don't think you sleep a huge amount, do you? Well, how do you, in relation to like to your home and and the space and the way it's kind of anchor point for most of us, how does it support you psychologically, emotionally? Because that's you put yourself through a lot, right? You're always working. There's a lot in your brain, right? Yeah. What's what's your counterpoint to that? Yeah, I suppose
0: whenever I. I need to to think and and uh, and de-link. You no, know? I mean that's Paul Chan always uses this this notion of de-linking when we, you know, don't link to all these devices. Yeah, then I'm I'm in a way in in the Swiss mountains and and a lot of my ideas have always come from the Engadin. It's it's where I began actually with my first house museum exhibition, at Nietzsche House of Gerhard Richter. You know, where Nietzsche wrote Zarathustra. And 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 really, it's in the Engadin that I've always had all, all my ideas. So I I go there, you know, a couple of times a year, and uh, I would say that's that's the place where where I think.
1: Mm. Brilliant! Thanks so much, and it's
0: again say. connected to a house. Yeah, kind of it all is connected strangely to houses it's because of the Nietzsche house there. You know, yeah, because I it's it's um, we we spend a lot of time in that house where Nietzsche Road Zarathustra and we worked with Gerd Richter on this show, and I would say that. All these house exhibitions I've told you about—they really grew out of that—and uh, mm. and I would always return back to that house. Yeah. Mm.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your Thanks great question. Love. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast is put together by our brilliant team at the Modern House, and as always, you can see some photographs relating to this episode on our website, which is themodernhouse.com. Thanks very much to all of you who signed up to our newsletter last time around. If you haven't yet done so, we'll put a link in the show notes as always. I can't wait to share some of our upcoming episodes with you. There are some very emotional and powerful conversations coming up that have really stuck with me. So if you haven't yet done so, please do follow the show and you'll be alerted as soon as those get released. Thanks as always to our executive producer, Kate Taylor of Peace Collective and to Father for the original music. Thanks again to all of you for being here uh, and see you next time.